was treated as if it was just this, this tragic fall from grace. Here he is, you know, wanted to be on Broadway, a movie star, and now he's, you know, he's driving this, this horse-drawn buggy. He loved it. You know, that's the only picture I, I found of him where he was smiling. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. The holidays are close, so here's an all-book episode to help you with your shopping list. She wasn't really vaccinated with a phonograph needle, but she was the Marx Brothers straight lady, Margaret Dumont. Hispanics added Latin energy and sensuality to the movies going back to silent days, as Luis I. Reyes explains in Viva Hollywood. And he was a real-life tough guy in the movies, as Burt Kearns tells in the first biography of Lawrence Tierney. Leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts to help spread the word about what we do here. That's how it is, see? Thanks. We've been expecting you. As chairwoman of the reception committee, I extend the good wishes of every man, woman, and child of Fredonia. Never mind that stuff. Take a card. Card? What'll I do with the card? You can keep it. I've got 51 left. Now, what were you saying? As chairwoman of the reception committee, I welcome you with open arms. Is that so? How late do you stay open? Charlie Chaplin had Eric Campbell. Buster Keaton had Big Joe Roberts. Laurel and Hardy had James Finlayson. But alone among the great comedians, the Marx Brothers had a woman as a recurring foil, the one and only Margaret Dumont. She represented the high society that the Marxists would inevitably bring low by the end of the movie, and Groucho always insisted that Dumont really was that type, and never got their jokes. Did, did Margaret Dumont find you funny? She played the, as everybody knows, the dowager. No, she never lady. understood anything I did on the stage. <laughs> Is that so? She didn't really. She thought I was serious. But who was Margaret Dumont really? That's the question that screenwriter Chris Entz and producer Howard Kazanjan, who produced a couple of movies you may have heard of, The Empire Strikes Back and Raiders of the Lost Ark, answer in Straight Lady, The Life and Times of Margaret Dumont, the fifth Marx brother, from Lions Press. I spoke with them from California. My name is Chris Entz. I am an author, uh, co-author of the book Straight Lady, The Life and Times of Margaret Dumont, the fifth Marx brother. And I'm Howard Kazanjan, a producer and also a co-writer with Chris and would not be a writer if it were not for Chris. <laughs> okay. Well, tell, yeah, tell me how that happened because you've both written a number of books, mostly about the Old West, which Margaret Dumont is not, but we'll get to her in a minute. Howard and I uh, met in uh, twenty in two thousand late two thousand three early two thousand four. He he was a judge for the uh, Nickel Fellowship for the Academy of Motion Picture Arts, and um, my my screenplay caught his attention, and he gave me a call and asked me if I would like to um, work on the project about Roy Rogers and Dale Evans. So that's how it all began. 
Okay. So we we started writing about about people in motion pictures long before we were writing about people characters from the West. Okay. Yeah, and, and you've now written four books together. So uh, tell me about that. Well, we've written 12 or 13 books together with two oh. more on the way. And Chris has written, what, 50 books on yeah. our own. Okay. Yeah, so we have, I mean, it's nice that we return to our roots with this particular book, uh, Straight Lady. And uh, we're going to be doing um, another book about motion pictures. We're doing a book called uh, Come Back to Shame about the making <laughs> of the motion picture shame. Nice. All right. Well, so how do you decide on Margaret Dumont as a topic just because no one else had done it? Yeah, we always look for the for those kinds of stories that no one else has done, but we think would be marketable. Certainly no one else has ever written about Margaret Dumont. And uh, she's very well known, even though you have to say, you know, the love interest for Martin for Groucho Marx. You always <laughs> have to she comes she comes with her own disclaimer. Yeah. So um, we we love being able to pick. Uh, individuals that um, everybody knows, but no one knows. You know, that was certainly my thought was, I mean, here's someone I've seen a million times and I can pretty much tell you, you know, the, the middle of her career at least was making, what is it? Seven movies with the Marx brothers, mm -hmm. but I couldn't right. tell you anything about her before that. So yeah. Tell me, tell me about the hidden history of Margaret Dumont. Well, um, Margaret was born in October, uh, let me make sure I get that, 1882. I always have to remember. 1882 <laughs> is, is a good year to remember because it's the year after the gunfight at the OK Corral. So I have to, everything, everything is based on that. Yeah. Um, and, and she began uh, as a singer and a comedian uh, in vaudeville and ended up on doing a lot of Broadway shows. Very funny woman, very talented soprano. Um, as a matter of fact, won several awards for being one of the funniest women on stage, uh, which I think bears mentioning because Groucho always said she never got the joke. He didn't think that she knew what was funny, but that couldn't possibly have been true because she was celebrated for her comedy when she first started out. Yeah, no, you you find quotes certainly where she seems very perceptive about what her role is in the the Marx Brothers universe and things like that. So, um, yeah, I, I've always had my doubts about that. You know, that someone would play the same role seven times just by accident. Yeah, just by accident. And and um, you know, I mean, she was she she'd have been in several. Um, wonderful productions on Broadway. Her voice was really her. Her, her mother was a, was a was a music teacher, and she really trained Margaret and her sister um, in music. And Margaret was this exceptional. As I said, she was an exceptional soprano. And uh, George and M. Cohan um, saw her perform and wrote songs for her to perform in his shows. So she was no slouch at singing. Even though sometimes when you see her in the films, she's she's camping singing. I mean, it's right. She's she's pretending like she doesn't have any talent, but nothing could be further from the truth. Yeah, no. It seems like I mean, even when she ta just talks, it's kind of musical. Oh, Mister Firefly, you know that kind of thing. 
Right. I don't think I don't think she could help but do that. I, I think that kind of set her apart and everything that she was doing with Groucho too. You couldn't you could never get away with that. But she was very musically trained and it was and she was doing a play called The Four Flushers. And uh, George, the playwright George Kaufman uh, saw her performing and um, he decided that she was the one they needed to hire for the straight lady in the coconuts. So that's how it all started. Well, let's go back before the Marx Brothers enter the picture. She was born out of wedlock, so there was a certain amount of uh, maneuvering to keep that a secret. Um, and then when she and her sister became you know, young vaudeville stars, and this is really in their teens, I guess, um, the mother resents this and winds, they wind, kind of wind up in court. Or, yeah, tell, tell that story. Well, I, I think what is fascinating about that is their mother was, um, she, she saw, thought herself to be um, someone that should have been on Broadway. But of course, she was um, not as young as her daughters, and no one really wanted to see her on Broadway. They wanted to see her daughters on Broadway. And so there was some, there was, she was very jealous. And, and she, she made it seem as though she was protecting her daughters from being in this environment that really wasn't good for them. And so they end up in court where the girls pretty much, um, oh, long before there was emancipation, the girls decide that that's what they're going to do. And they win. And, and it's not a unique story. Maybe the court is, but there are a number of mothers that had younger actor actresses that resented their success sure yeah no i I thought it was interesting that the uh she the mother drags in the jerry society at one point which most most silent film fans will know from its long-running battle with buster keaton and his father um but yeah she's trying to use that you know basically reporting her daughters for being exploited uh, because they are enjoying the fruits of being in vaudeville or being on, you know, on the stage, and she's not she's not getting her piece of it or her any enjoyment of it in the same way. Yeah, what's so ironic about that is 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 their mother helped make that possible. I mean, their mother was the <laughs> one that groomed them for this kind of thing. So yeah. how, how dare you do what I trained you to do? That's right. Yeah. How how dare you? you? I didn't expect you to be this big. You weren't <laughs> supposed to be that big. So, yeah. So she she has a career uh, on stage for a while. And, you know, then like many young women on the stage, she winds up finding some guy to marry. And like many of those women, it didn't particularly work out all that well. He was a he was a professional golfer, lived off his father's. Uh, wealth, and then that went badly. Well, but I mean, but that's not exactly accurate, Mike, because it does it doesn't go badly. They're very happily married. He just died. He just dies during the flu epidemic. Yeah, right. But he also wound up in court with his father. Uh, That's what you're talking about. You're talking about the characters around. I thought you meant their marriage didn't work out very well. No, yeah. I mean, I think they, I think they had that in common because. he, you know, when he was, he was, um, he reminds me of some sort of prince from a different country where you're just <laughs> all day long, you're, you're playing golf and you're doing these things that, that really don't, don't bring, don't make a living for you. And then, 
he sues his father because his father says, I'm not going to give you all this money that I've been giving you. So you're going to be cut off. Then he sues his father by saying, yeah, but you raised me to be this way. I mean, this is so he and Margaret kind of had that in common. Their their battles with their with their families. So, yeah, I thought that was really interesting that yeah. um, the, the, the Moeller family really had the corner on the uh, sugar market. Oh, yeah. So that was that was how they they made all of their money. And uh, they really um, Margaret then leaves the stage to be this um, society woman and um, ends up, you know, hosting parties. And at first she's not very well, well accepted because she's a theater lady and not, not a proper theater lady. She's vaudeville. Right. So so not very well, not as respected as you would be doing Shakespeare. Right. As opposed to being a professional golfer back then, you know, <laughs> which right, is, right. you know, seems to me about on a par with being in vaudeville. But anyway, right. Um, all right. So, yeah, so she's out of the business, I don't know, roughly a decade, something like that. Um, and then she goes back into it. And now she's old enough that it's really this is where she starts becoming you know, the, the dowager grand dam that we all know. Well, I think being, um, being of a certain age, actresses of a certain age really found their niche playing mothers or aunts or plucky neighbors or witty sidekicks. <laughs> and, and certainly that was, um, Margaret was lucky enough to be able, as I said, um, she does the four flushers and Kaufman sees her in the four flushers and said, she's perfect. There's our straight lady. <laughs> uh, you know, she held herself in a very regal manner and um, just the perfect foil from that point on. Um, and, and what a lucky break for her um, to be able to, to, to find that particular niche. Yeah. Don't, don't you think, Howard, that was, that was real lucky for her to be able to fall into that? Absolutely. Sometimes they don't realize how lucky they are. I yeah. think she did. Yeah, no, it's I, funny. She's later talking about how she's she was typecast at the Grand Dame, and it's like all you can say is congratulations. Right. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it made her a career. That's absolutely correct. I mean, you know, one of the things Howard and I have talked about this too. One of the things that um, people have said about the book, um, not many, most people just really they really like the book. But there have been some people who said, well, you know, it seems like everything about her life really was centered around the Marx Brothers. And it's more about the Marx Brothers than it is in her. But, you know, I mean, her life wouldn't have been what it was had it not been for the Marx Brothers. That's why the book is called Margaret Dumont, the fifth Marx Brother. You know, that's to me, that's sort of like saying, golly, that battle of the little bighorn. You know, why do we always have to talk about Custer? You know, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, they're they're pivotal in her life. Yeah, no, I think you know. I was thinking someone like Boris Karloff. You know, if not for one role, none of us would know who he is. We'd see him occasionally in old movies, but you know, he was very grateful for that one role that you know gave him. And he was a good actor, a wonderful yeah. actor. Yeah, yeah. didn't think of him as that. And yeah, there are and others, I, you know, even, even in corporations, there's some that do the work and others get the credit. Yeah, that's for sure. And I, and I always thought that 
like Howard just said, Margaret was very aware of, she was very thankful for it. I mean, I think that's the reason why she put up with so much nonsense from the boys off, off stage or off screen. She was very, very much aware of what was going on. She wasn't, she didn't, she didn't take it for granted. Yeah, no, there's a lot of talk about, I mean, how they would roughhouse with her. And I mean, you know, here's a 45 or 50 year old lady and they're just like tackling her like it's football or something. Especially when it was unexpected. That was always, I mean, and I think she caught on to that even after a while because she had a special girdle made for her that was all whalebone so she could take the hits and it not really affect the ribs. <laughs> so you can imagine, you know, and I think sometimes you can still see that. If you see any movie, if you see the Marx Brothers movies and you see Margaret in her gowns, they seem to be padded. But I don't think that was all Margaret Dumont padding. That right. was that was padding that came from what you had to do, like you were a pro football player or something, because they really were merciless with her. Yeah, no, I was reading about the the trapeze scenes and at the circus and she's really up there being dangled from a rope and it's just like eh, find her a stunt woman can't you jeez but you know i don't i mean howard and i've talked about this too i don't think she would have done that i don't think she would have let a stunt person do it i don't think so no yeah she was she she wanted to be out in front whenever the i mean she was so hurt when they cast Thelma Todd in a couple of pictures, even though Thelma, her, she was a femme fatale. Margaret wouldn't have played that role, although she argued, I'm a good actress, I could do this, I have range. But you know, she, she, I really don't think she could have pulled off the, 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 yeah. <laughs> the parts that Thelma Todd did. Yeah, it wouldn't uh, have quite, really quite the same. Right. She was hurt to say that she wasn't hurt, that they didn't cast her or find a part for her. But but they knew. I, I mean, the, the, the Thelma Todd films were never as big as the Margaret Dumont films. Yeah, no, I think they kind of had to discover that at that point, that she was their natural foil. And I mean, you could do other things with them, put somebody else against them, but it just wasn't the same that really the the great collaboration was having her there as as the person that they're they're up against and i mean it suited them well that she, you know she had this sort of respectability that they're just trampling all over uh, in those movies and i know howard and i have talked about this too about how she was the true north on stage because they would get off on doing what they were doing and um she would remember the lines she was the go-to person to go, everybody, you're so far off track, where are we? Margaret knew where they were in the script, where, where they were. She would bring them back. Yeah, no, there's that one where you talk about, they just refused to save her cue, and she finally just has to, you know, march into the middle up. of the scene. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Hi, remember me? I'm in your show here. Right, right. Yeah. Well... And, and she knew enough not to ask for her cue. Yeah. Because, you know, you read, there's a section of the book where we talk about how they would whack her with the pool cue. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so she knew, I'm just going to charge ahead. I'm not going to ask. 
Yeah, so I mean, she played with a lot of other comedians. It was, I was surprised to see how many she worked with. I mean, I, of course, I knew with Fields in Never Give a Sucker and Even Break, but I mean, it's, you know, Abin Costello and Wheeler and Woolsey, and then <clears throat> later on TV, there's all kinds of people. She's on some, you know, some Bob Hope show thing. I don't know if she actually did comedy with Bob Hope. You know, she's in The Horn Blows at Midnight with Jack Benny. I, just, mean, she, I just watched that movie last night and, she, and and loved her in that. I mean, again, she's singing, but it's a very campy way of singing. So, yeah, I mean, when her Marx Brother career sort of reaches its end, what does she do after that point? Is the last one at the circus or go west? I forget. Or the big store. She's in the big store, right? Yeah, the big store is the last one that they do. That premiered in uh, June of 41. Go west premiered in December of 40. Okay. So, yeah. So the big store is the last one. And, I mean, then what's her career like? Well, and this is where Howard and I kind of i mean this this was common ground for howard and i too because remember howard she does um uh road to el dorado i can't even remember what the what sunset in el dorado that's what it was <laughs> sunset in el dorado with roy rogers roy rogers right yeah, yeah. which is funny because earlier you talk about how she felt she didn't belong in the old west so she wasn't surprised she was in go west and then she's in a movie with roy rogers so and you know what? She's good in that. Yeah. Um, she's good at it because everybody has dual roles. Uh, and, and you can see her range in those dual roles. Yeah. So she's, she's good. It's a fun movie. Is there anything really unusual or did she stay pretty typecast in all that time? There's not, there's not some noir where she runs the casino or something like that. I, like I don't recall. I can't think of one uh, where I, she Really she never really, she never really, never did deviate really from who she was. Um, I don't, I don't think anybody would let her deviate from who she was. Yeah. She wanted to, and and she, and Thalberg had promised that he would help her. He, I right. mean, w when they were doing a day at the races, Thalberg saw in her immense talent and really wanted to bring her along and said, you know, you, I, I see in you great things, and and I'm going to help you. Um, help you do expand your your repertoire, as it were. And I think that, I mean, she was brokenhearted, of course, when he died. Not only because of you know the person that he was, but because right. with him went any opportunity she thought anybody else would give her. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. She talks later in her life that that the grand dam roles are really over that women just aren't like that anymore, that it's a type that belongs to, you know, somewhere well before World War II, that era. And yet, I don't know, I mean, I, I never saw anybody having a problem with it watching a Marx Brothers movie back in the 70s or 80s. So, you know, something timeless about her. Absolutely, it's true. And, and I think it's, and I think at some point, you know, the, the audiences, didn't really resonate with the Marx Brothers movie after a while. They they had a particular time in history. Even though yeah. I watched them again and again and again, I just don't know if that. And certainly they weren't doing that. I mean, I just don't know after Thalberg passed away. And really, it was Thalberg who said, "Guys, 
in order to get more people to come see your film, it has to be about something. It can't just be one, one sketch after another. You have to have some connective tissue with the story. And, you know, the music is great. You've got to have some romance. Uh, Thalberg really was the one that shaped them into that, you know, and, and Mayer couldn't stand them. Right. So, you know, so he wasn't going to help them along the way. But after a while, I, I think that they kind of, um, I, I think their kind of humor to some degree went, I hate to say that because there's, their films are so timeless. I love watching Marx Brothers films. I still get a kick out of it. But things can be of a time. There's no doubt about that. Right, right. But, but you know, when you see, when you and I see their old films, we adjust to that. Right. Don't think the modern generation can handle that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, I mean, it's not like anybody thinks, oh, I'm really watching what life was like in 1932. No, I'm watching Duck Soup, and it's its own world, so. Right, right. We just, Howard and I did an, did an event in um, Pasadena for the launch of the book, and I was really happy to hear, and we, we showed the films, and I was so happy to hear people just cracking up. Yeah. <laughs> as much today as you would have then. Yes. Yeah. And Margaret comes on. Margaret comes on the screen on the screen, and she she takes up the screen. Her right. presence is big. Her presence is big. So you can't you can't look away from Margaret. I mean, um, you know, hey, I, I mean, and just like Rauscha says, hey, you you take up a lot of space too. I think yeah. they're going to tear you down and put up a put up a a, a building. So. Yeah, I knew there was a quote that went with that, and I couldn't quite make it happen. Yeah, but I'm glad you had it. Um, well, yeah, tell me about writing this book. I mean, what did you really find on her? Uh, later on, of course, it's, it's a lot of newspaper quotes about, you know, stories about the making of the next Marx Brothers film or stuff like that. But, you know, other stuff, I mean, what, what all did you find researching her? I assume there isn't like a big cache of her letters or anything like that. So it's mostly publicity stories. Right. And things other people had shared about her, uh, her friends that she had had, mostly in the New York area, and things that they had shared. I mean, she they sent her to uh, um, a Catholic school in Canada. And so a lot of a lot of what is written about Margaret was found in that in that particular school. I can't remember the name of the academy right now. But um, I, I think one of the things that we found about her that I, that I hope came through in, in the book was that um, how she was despondent that the Marx Brothers didn't keep her involved in things that they were doing. Certainly when uh, Groucho was doing um, um, his, his, his television You Bet Your show, Life. You Bet Your Life. He wanted her to be on the television show. And she asked if she was going to get paid. And he said, no, only if you win. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? That's Groucho through and through. Right. Yeah, uh, Groucho <laughs> through and through. But, but still, she thought that she had uh, her relationship with them and, and, and the things that they had done would give her a little bit more, um, a little bit more of an in, let's say, for whatever they were going to be doing. 
so I, I mean, I think that she was terribly sad. That's one of the things that, and then, you know, when she does the television show, the um, network television show with Groucho, they're, they're at the end of her life. It's filmed in, um, it's filmed in January, February of the year that she passes away, which I believe is 64. And um, it airs after she dies. And she's having a really, you would never know when you're watching it that she's not feeling well. But I think that those are the kinds of truths about Margaret that she would go into just to hang on to whatever she, she didn't want to, she didn't want to go into another career or do something else. She was hanging on to um, her life um, with Groucho and with the Marx brothers, her, her desire to keep in the industry, her desire to be relevant with the Marx brothers is one of the reasons why she um, continued to said yes to doing the, 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 the television show with Groucho where they would do that sketch together, even though she's not feeling well. And you're, you know what, Mike, I mean, one of the things that Howard and I, when we, and we, we researched and we researched, it's sad that after a certain time, there isn't a lot about Margaret. She didn't write, she didn't keep a journal. She didn't keep a diary. She didn't have letters that would explain what went on later on in her life, which is sad, which is why we wanted to do this book. But, but I, still find, I still think that it's important to be able to tell her story and you'd be able to see through some of these things, how she wanted to keep, she was the fifth Marx brother and didn't want to let go. But how, how great is it that at the end of her life, that, that when, when uh, Groucho accepts the, the Honorary Academy Award, he does thank her. So at long last, she gets she gets recognition for her role as a straight lady. I've an announcement to make. Captain Spaulding, the celebrated African explorer, is coming to town for a lecture and he's spending the weekend as my house guest. That's a very great honor. How do you do? I'm highly honored. Really? For a moment, I thought you were a highly Selassie. <laughs> That's kind of African jokes we have. <laughs> well, a written house manor is at your disposal. Well, I hope your disposal is working. Because I brought a lot of garbage with me from Africa. And I've been saying it all evening out of here. I may have to do this over again in a minute. Straight Lady, The Life and Times of Margaret Dumont, the fifth Marx brother, by Chris Entz and Howard Kazanjan, is out now from Lions Press. A link will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. African Americans were stereotyped in movies as servants and the poor until well into the 1950s. Asian Americans only fared a little better, sometimes playing characters of intelligence and resourcefulness, but often being played by non-Asians, like Warner Oland or Paul Muni in The Good Earth. Compared with that, Hispanics in Hollywood fared fairly well. Yes, they could be stereotyped as banditos, but they could also be cast as romantic figures, the Latin lovers of the silent era. They could even be cast as non-Latinos, Anthony Quinn played more Greeks and Arabs than he ever played Mexicans like himself. 
The progress of Hispanics in Hollywood is the subject film scholar Luis I. Reyes tackles in Viva Hollywood, the legacy of Latin and Hispanic artists in American film, from TCM and Running Press. Though it covers a century of film running to the present day, with stars like Jennifer Lopez and Antonio Banderas, I thought it would be interesting to talk to Reyes about the unique position of Latin artists in the vintage film era. We spoke from Pasadena. First of all, let me just kind of dispel a couple of misconceptions. Sure. Latinos have been involved in the Hollywood film industry since its inception, number one. The reason that uh, they came to Hollywood to make movies, one of the many reasons, you know, among, you know, the good weather and getting away from the, you know, patents back east was the fact that there was an available labor pool non-union here in Los Angeles that was made up primarily of Mexican-Americans, Chinese, and immigrants. And you well know if you're going to start an industry, you need, uh, you know, people to build sets. They did a lot of Westerns in those days. You need people to ride horses, to act as extras, you you know, et cetera, et cetera. So number one, we've been involved from the beginning okay of the industry and then number two the other popular misconception is that everybody uh that latinos were forced to change their names no everybody changed their name in hollywood (laughs) for the most part unless your name was tyrone power and you looked like tyrone power (laughs) you know but most everybody who played a lot uh, of spaniards right yeah exactly and they changed you know if they changed their name it was because to fit the image that the studios or they themselves were you know were selling at the time and that audiences would identify with it wasn't a name that was foreign sounding it usually fit your image everybody changed their name i mean would uh carrie grant have made it as archie bald leach uh, i don't think so. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know or john wayne had a girl's name was marion you know yeah. so anyway everybody changed their name you know, people like you said, the Spaniards, one of the first uh, Latin actors uh, was uh, Antonio Moreno, okay, who starred in many films in, in The Silence. He started uh, with D.W. Griffith and the Biograph Company back east, and uh, he did many serials um, with, uh, I think it was Pearl White. He did many serials, and then he became a leading man. And uh, I guess today he's best known today for... Uh, being the professor in the creature from the black lagoon and uh, he also is best known for as the mexican vaquero who helps um, john wayne's ethan edwards search for his niece in uh, the searchers right in that time period the thing i think you know most uh, people in the us would associate with mexico is pancho villa and uh, that certainly shapes how Mexicans are cast uh, for much of that time. An awful lot of banditos in movies back then. Right, because they did a lot of Westerns. Absolutely. And, and the bandito images was uh, pushed during the Mexican Revolution. But it really, as I say in the book, it really had its origins beyond before that. I mean, in the Pulp Fiction Westerns, uh, the, the dime novels of the uh, late 1800s. And so, I mean, it 
these a lot of these stereotypes weren't uh, invented by movies. They were already there. The right. movies just put a face on them. And actually, Pancho Villa really started out being a hero. It wasn't his his image changed when he attacked the U.S. Yeah. First, he was called the uh, Robin Hood that he was, you know, the savior of Mexico. But once he attacked U.S. interests, he became, oh, the bandit, the murderer, you know, that kind of thing. Now, when do you see the first uh, stars of, of Latino background coming about? Well, if, uh, first, as I said, it was Antonio Moreno. Right. Uh, and he started in 1910, 1912. And he was from Spain originally. Okay, came here as a young man. But then at the same time, you had a Mexican-American actress. Uh, her name was uh, Myrtle Gonzalez, who starred in Westerns for uh, Warner Brothers' first national pictures uh, and Universal. And she was a, a screen heroine in many films. Uh, she did like something like 50 silent films. Uh, unfortunately, she, her career didn't last very long because she died in 1918 uh, during the, the the pandemic of 1918. Right. And then there was another actress uh, by the name of, uh, was a more elegant, stately uh, actress. Uh, she came from the, the opera world. Her name was Beatrice Michelina. And she had her own uh, production company that was set up in San Francisco. Okay. So these were two very early uh, silent uh, film stars. And then we get into later on, we get into uh, uh, even though, even though he's, because again, our concept of Latino has also changed. Okay. Oh, okay. Because Latin used to mean anybody from the romance languages. So, you're you're talking about Italians, uh, French, uh, Spanish, Portuguese, but uh, in reality, one of the first Latin lovers was Italian, which was Rudolph Valentino. Sure. Okay, and he started that whole kind of Latin lover craze, um, and then right after him uh, on came Ramon Navarro, okay, who was from Mexico, was from Durango, Mexico, and. Uh, he starred in the film that helped to uh, establish uh, MGM as a major studio, which was the classic uh, original Ben-Hur right. in 1926. I was thinking about the films where Hispanics are portrayed in, in some way, things like The Mark of Zorro. And I think it's interesting, you know, Spain, of course, being in Europe – it wasn't like having Douglas Fairbanks play a Mexican peasant who came over from the border, say. He was, you know, came from a family of stature in their own country and things like that. And it which seems to me to be sort of the way that Hollywood made it acceptable for a, uh, you know, a, a white star uh, to be playing someone, you know, Hispanic. That's, that's, obvi that's obviously true, but uh, um, um, really the it was based on, a, on a, a short story that was written by uh, Justin McCulley. And he combined several uh, epics uh, together, uh, eras together, the, the Spanish era with the Mexican era, the Rancho period. And it took place in California, okay, which was then a province of Mexico. Uh, so yes, the family was Spanish. They weren't Mexican. 
but uh, Zorro or Don Diego was actually born in because then in California. Right. And yes, he was a hacendado, a family of because. And you're absolutely right when uh, when they make the, when they say uh, that Zorro is there uh, to fight injustice. It's really the he's fighting injustice against the uh, the the landed aristocracy. Okay, he's not really fighting for the rights of the peons. Right. Okay, that later hap- that happened later in the later interpretations of the of the character. Similar thing with uh, the Cisco kid. Um, you talk a little bit about how it evolved with different people playing that character, um, and particularly uh, one in particular, Gilbert Rowland, that the character becomes more has more Mexican identity as Roland comes to play it. Yes, absolutely. Because uh, remember again, um, the original Cisco kid written by O'Henry was not even Latin. Okay. Uh, he was, he was a uh, Caucasian. Okay. He was white. The film interpretations when they made it into films, they uh, Latinized him in the, in the portrayal of Warner Baxter originally uh, and then uh, later on with uh, Cesar Romero, they gave him a sidekick, Gordito, because uh, every every hero needed a sidekick in those days. Right. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and then Gilbert Rowland uh, took over the role. And uh, yes, because it was a low budget film uh, for, I think it was Monogram Studios, uh, they gave him a lot of leeway in the characterization Uh that it, he decidedly made the character more Mexican, a more authentic, and he also made it a point to maybe steer away a little bit from the stereotypes. And one of the uh, uh, Cisco's that he did, uh, the film opens with him reading Shakespeare, um, <laughs> you know, over you know while he's overseeing the the, the Rio Grande, and uh, so he he himself said that he wanted to make sure that. Uh, the Mexican was not portrayed as a savage or unwashed or uneducated. The chapter, or one of the first chapters at least, that kind of covers the silent era, you title Matinee Idols, Latin Lovers, and Dancing Senoritas, which I think really points to the fact that you could be seen as a as a romantic idol in some fashion uh, as a Hispanic performer in a way that really was not the case for African-American performers or really not much for Asian performers. You sort of have the one exception of Sesu Hayakawa and later uh, Anna Mae Wong, but you know, not, not really as, as prominently as stars like Dolores Del Rio or Gilbert Rowland, like you say. So what do you think, I mean, what was Hollywood's attitude or, or, the public's attitude about the acceptability of these performers. Well, re- remember, uh, movies at that time were basically weren't considered high art. Right. They, you know, they were considered basically the people that went to the movies were basically immigrants and working class people. Okay. For the most part. I mean, that's how the, the industry started. You know, movies were considered like the low rung. Uh, at the beginning, uh, you know, theater was, you know, where was that? You know, that was the, the quality. And even then, people kind of looked down on, on theater, too. But it was 
theater was the standard. Movies were like a step down uh, for, for a long time. And then uh, among Latinos, the first of all, Latinos, because of our diversity, the way we look, uh, the diversity of, of, of Latins, uh, we could play within uh, the constraints of the industry of the time because movies reflect the attitudes, the values of, when, of whatever society produces them. So within the, those constraints, Latinos could play, you know, uh, they could play uh, different types of roles. They could play Latino, they could play French, they could play Native Americans, they could play Polynesians, Pacific Islanders, and technically, according to the U.S. Census at that time, uh, Latinos or Mexicans were white, were considered white. Okay, so it was uh, there was a difference there between, let's say, African Americans or Asians who were not, uh, uh, you know, considered white. Things weren't quite as defined in the silent period and in, in the early sound. It wasn't until the production code came in in 1933-34 that things started becoming uh, more institutionalized and, and restricted. So do you feel that uh, the silent era kind of shaped people's attitudes about the uh, Hispanic community in America? Uh, I don't know if it made them more acceptable, but they were part of the American experience. Okay. Okay. I mean, because they're, you know, every Western always had a, a, an ascendado, a Mexican sidekick, uh, beautiful senoritas. Uh, can, so we were part of, uh, of the landscape, you know, absolutely. Uh, so I think the, the, the culture as part of the American culture and also as part of the European culture, it was, it was there. I mean, so I think people were introduced to these things. If they weren't already aware of these things in literature or in books or, or uh, periodicals of the time, they were fully realized uh, on screen. Absolutely. Now you mentioned the production code. I mean, do you do you sense that there was kind of a a move backwards in any way with the production code? Oh, absolutely on all on all levels. Absolutely, uh, it certainly did. Uh, and then, you know, when you, well, the classic case is uh, not necessarily Latino, but it is uh, Anna Mae Wong. I mean, she was, uh, she was uh, the first choice, or at least uh, was considered for the role in The Good Earth, which was a leading role of a, a Chinese uh, woman. And she would have been perfect for the role, but because of the production code and biases that were held at the time, uh, she didn't get that role, so it it did hold people's career back. Uh, Latinos, uh, not not quite as much as I can recall. For the most part, no, they seem to be able to uh, navigate. I mean, Ramon Navarro played Latinos. They also played non-Latinos. Right. Uh, you know, Dolores Del Rio the same the same way. Gilbert Roland the same. But yeah, but once sound came in, then they started to become limited, you know, in, in just, just certain types of, of, of roles and, and not always leading roles. And we're mainly talking about stars, but there are Hispanics who worked in many other parts of the industry. Tell me about some of those that you find particularly interesting. 
Well, Marcel Delgado, who did the original models for the original King Kong in 1933. Um, Marcel Delgado was discovered by uh, Willis O'Brien at, at an art school. And uh, Marcel Delgado went on uh, to do uh, Son of Kong, and uh, he also did Mighty Joe Young. Okay, so he was uh, a model maker in 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 the original King Kong. Mario Larinaga, who did the scenic paintings, all the the background uh, scenic paintings for King Kong, and then later on the classic, also a classic film, King of uh, Citizen Kane. And then we're, we're, we're talking later on, uh, of, there was a film called Jailhouse Rock. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. With Elvis Presley. Well, um, there was a Latino choreographer, Alex Romero, was the one that taught Elvis uh, how to dance and put together that musical number, Jailhouse Rock, that is uh, considered a, a, a classic musical number. But uh, they tried the regular choreographers at uh, MGM tried to turn it into a kind of a Gene Kelly type of dance number. Right. <laughs> <laughs> And Alex Romero, who's also a choreographer, said, no, no, this isn't going to work for Elvis. You know, so he said, Elvis, what do you do when you're performing on stage? What, what are your moves? And Elvis showed him. And he said, great. And he said, give me about an hour. So he came <laughs> back an hour later and he incorporated El and, you know, Elvis's moves into the dance. And it's, uh, you know, super. And he added some, you know, background dancers and it, turned into a memorable musical number that's still talked about today. I mean, so Latinos have been involved uh, behind the scenes. I mean, from, from the beginning, I mean, uh, Charlie Chaplin's casting director was, was Latino. Now one section in your book that you kind of focus on that I thought was interesting to think about, because I think we don't think about it a lot was just the amount of, of, Latin musical performance that sort of entered somewhere in the 30s and certainly in the 40s when there were there was a real effort in including South America in you know the American sphere. So yeah, I mean that that must have had cultural impact. What do you think that was? Oh yeah, no, absolutely. The cultural impact was. I mean, they not only appeared in motion pictures. Xavier Cugat sold records. Carmen Miranda was a, a, a best-selling record. I mean, yeah, Desi Arnaz. I mean, so uh, all of these people, they had a tremendous impact. I mean, uh, Carmen Miranda was what the in the nineteen mid nineteen forties. She was like the highest paid uh, woman in America. You know, because she because of her movies or nightclub acts or she was on Broadway and her records. I mean, so, I mean, a lot of these people, uh, yes, certainly had a, a strong impact. Certainly Kugat, I mean, uh, his career went from, I mean, he appeared in, in, in the Mae West, uh, yeah. a musical drama. I mean, so, uh, these people impact, uh, were, I mean, the, the, to this day, I mean, Carmen Miranda was the inspiration for uh, the Chiquita Banana brand. <laughs> the impact is is is, is incredible. Uh, Desi Arnaz, uh, one of his first uh, uh, gigs was with uh, uh, Xavier Cugat. So, um, you know, he was uh, a, a tremendous influence. Much more later on, on, in 
in TV, but uh, he did make a sensation with the conga line in New York, you know, and in, and in the Broadway show that was later turned into a movie, Too Many Girls, okay? Yeah. Uh, so uh, all of these people had a, had a tremendous impact on, on the culture, particularly at, at that time, you know, because uh, they were everywhere. They were on the radio, they were on, uh, you know, the music, uh, recordings, in the movies. Uh, they also appeared in the newspapers, in the columns, in the movie magazines. Uh, they were talked about, uh, you know, so, I mean, when Carmen Miranda arrived in New York, she was the toast of the town. I mean, she took town by storm, okay? Maria Montez and her, she was called the queen of technicolor. I mean, her her Arabian Nights, uh, you know, uh, Alibaba and the 40 Thieves, you know, these technicolor movies that she did for Universal. I mean, she, uh, along with... Uh, with the universal monsters like Dracula, Frankenstein, that that monster cycle, along with the musical star Deanna Durbin, and along with Abbott and Costello, she was one of the top money makers for Universal Studios uh, during the 1940s. Yeah, also, I mean, in the 40s, it seems like um, you really start to get, and maybe this isn't as new as I think it is, but you know, started to get stars of Mexican origin who weren't necessarily typed as Mexican. I mean, somebody like Anthony Quinn, did he ever even play a Mexican, or was he too busy playing Greeks and Arabs the whole time? I don't know. No, I mean, he, he started his career uh, playing every ethnicity known uh, to man, but he did, to answer your question, he did play... Uh, a Mexican in his early career. He played uh, a bandido um, in several films. Uh, he played uh, Asian uh, with Anna Mae Wong, actually. Um, and uh, yeah, he played an Indian, a Native American in The Plainsman with Gary Cooper. That was that was one of his first uh, yeah. films. Um, so yeah, I mean, he played. Uh, oh, he played uh, uh, the, the one of the the Mexican. Uh, one of he was a Mexican cowboy who was uh, of hanged in uh, the Oxbow incident with Henry Fonda, right. the, the movie about the Lynch Law, you know. So, oh yeah, I mean he he played every, and he had that capacity. I mean, not everyone can do it as well as he did. Where every ethnicity, every nationality, the Greeks thought he was Greek, the Italians right. thought he was Italian, <laughs> you know, the Arabs thought he was you know Arab. I mean, he was, you know, for the second half of the 20th century, I would say he was probably the most important uh, uh, Latino or uh, American Latino, actually, because he was uh, raised in, in, in Los Angeles. He was born in Mexico, but he was raised in Los Angeles. Uh, so I would say he's probably the most important because of the international stature that he attained. Yeah, and then uh, the other one that I, I think about is uh, Rita Hayworth. I mean, someone who started, you know, as as a Mexican uh, dancer, and plays that a little bit in movies. But you see her becoming less and less overtly Latino as her roles go by. And then, I mean, there's things like you know she famously had electrolysis to raise her hairline. Uh, and things like that, but I mean, by the time she's doing "You Were Never Lovely" or or some or Cover Girl, I mean, there's really there's not a lot of suggestion that she's supposed to be seen as 
as being Mexican. I guess some of those films are, are again, the South American musicals, and you don't know quite where people come from. You know, she could be as as Latino as Don Amici in those, but... Uh... Right. <laughs> but again, it, it's, again, it's worth... First of all, she uh, she wasn't Mexican. She was of Spanish origin. Her father was a Spanish uh, a dance master from Andalusia, and her mother was Irish, okay? Irish-American. And she was born in Brooklyn, in New York City, okay? And uh, and her and she started her career with her actual name, which was uh, Rita Margarita Cancino. Okay, her last name was Cancino. And uh, when she started her career, her film career, her early film credits list her as Margarita Cancino. And actually, she when she first uh, started at Fox before it was 20th Century Fox, it was just Fox films. Uh, you'll see her, her credit as Rita. Uh, Cancino. And uh, later on, she took her mother's name, which was Hayward. Okay. And, uh, but she was always proud of her, of her heritage. Uh, and, uh, you know, they transformed her. She changed her image. Uh, you're absolutely right. But, you know, a lot of people do that. So it wasn't that unheard of at the time. Sure. Uh, even today, if you see pictures of, uh, Jennifer Lopez when she first started and you see pictures of her now uh, you know her look has changed incredibly over the years okay but just like Jennifer uh, Rita's very proud of her Spanish heritage uh, she never shied away from it and uh, actually when she got a chance to produce her own films uh, she started her own production company uh, the first film she made was uh the loves of Carmen, okay, which was about a, which is a Spanish story, okay, that um, that the opera by Bizet is based on. Do you see in the post-war period a way that attitudes start to change? Uh, yes, I mean movies started to become more international, you know, with the worldwide market, so it was starting to get much uh, more importance. Uh, so. Uh, the you had consequently the Mexican film industry uh, had grown and matured in its importance, particularly with the help of the, the United States under the you know the uh, good neighbor policy. I mean, actually, Churubusco Studios in uh, Mexico City, a state of the art facility, was constructed with the help of uh, RKO. Hmm. Because of that, you started incorporating people like uh, Pedro Armendariz, okay, who became very friendly with John Ford and uh, with uh, John Wayne and consequently was used in several pictures uh, with them. Uh, Katie Hurado, um, you know, she was brought over for and made a spectacular uh, uh, appearance uh, with uh, Gary Cooper in High Noon. And, uh, and then just before then, uh, a young actor who who was also educated and raised partly in Los Angeles, actually went to Fairfax High School, was Ricardo Montalban, okay? And he was put under contract to MGM. And at that time, MGM was the biggest number one studio. And uh, they featured him in many movies. I mean, when you see the 1948 uh, 
class photo, MGM photo of all the MGM stars, Ricardo's right there next to Clark Gable and everyone else, you know, and Elizabeth Taylor. So, I mean, he his career progressed at, at that time. I mean, he was under contract to MGM. So, yes, I mean, uh, and then at the same time, we had that, that noir uh, post-war films that dealt with social problems. So uh, we started having films like the film Pinky that dealt with uh, with African-Americans. Uh, so you started having films that dealt with the social problems in the United States and uh, with the ethnicities. And that's when you had films like The Lawless that starred Lalo Rios. Um, you had other films uh, like Border Incident that starred Ricardo Montalban that dealt with uh, immigration. Uh, you know, a topic that we're still dealing with 80 years later almost, okay? Uh, so you started having films of uh, Trial with Glenn Ford and with a young actor by the name of Rafael Campos uh, about a Latin boy who's accused of murdering a white girl and uh, it also deals with uh, also the whole communist uh, infiltration and blacklist thing where uh, a lawyer is, is duped into defending him by the uh, Communist Party. And that's Trial. So you started having um, all of these uh, influences are starting to uh, of affect and uh, helping to uh, move uh, Latino actors uh, forward. Yeah, there were two in particular that struck me as kind of representing the change. One was Jose Ferrer, uh, you know, winning an Oscar, first Latino uh, leading performer, at least, to, to win an Oscar. And also, I mean, becoming a director on his own, having a number of prominent roles, you know, just getting the sort of respect that you would associate with, say, an English actor coming to Hollywood or something like that. Correct. Correct. Oh, that's a good analogy. Absolutely. Good. And then the other one is just the casting of Cantinflas in uh, Around the World in 80 Days, which is just a recognition that the international market was aware of Mexican stars and they had the potential to, to have international appeal. Well, I think we've, I think the best way to, I think we've, we've evolved. Uh, the now, uh, the stereotypes are still present and I don't object to stereotypes, um, because they're convenient. The only problem is, is when you only see one overwhelming image and you don't see, um, you know, Latino doctors, lawyers, uh, uh, you know, uh, people, uh, characters which with with more nuanced portrayals, more complex characters played by Latinos and non-Latinos, and also dealing with the Latino American experience. Okay, uh, that was one thing that I was very uh, was important to me is that there were plenty. When I first wrote this book, there were plenty of books on Latin American cinema. There were plenty of books on Mexican cinema, but there were no books on the participation of Latinos in Hollywood cinema. Okay. And so that was what was important to me. I think we've come a long way, um, but uh, they're still lacking. I think we had great successes with La Bamba, with Selena, because now we're starting to define our own image within the American experience, okay? People like Luis Valdez, 
Right. Uh, people like, uh, you know, like Gregory Nava, Edward James Olmos, uh, the, 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 the most uh, important uh, American Latino filmmaker today, working today, is Robert Rodriguez. Yeah. Okay. Because he's from Texas. He's Mexican-American. He has helped the careers of Selma Hayek. He helped Antonio Banderas go from kind of a cutesy kind of Latin lover into an action hero with Desperado. I mean, he helped, uh, you know, make uh, who I call the Mexican Charles, Mexican-American Charles Bronson. Uh, we call it Danny Trejo turned a <laughs> character actor into a, a leading man in Machete. You know, so, I mean, and he did the Spy Kids uh, films that were right. extremely successful. So I think we're starting to define our own image within the Hollywood uh, system and the Hollywood experience. And I think that is so in, important, I mean, uh, to me, and that things are opening up where maybe uh, foreign sounding names don't sound so strange. If you can accept... Uh, you know, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, you, can, <laughs> you know, you can yeah. accept uh, Penelope Cruz. Okay. And uh, so I think we're m much more accepting as a society. Uh, and also you know, the world market is taking on such importance now. And I think one of the most uh, interesting things is that you have a Latina actress now, uh, Anna de Armas, playing the most iconic Hollywood actress, you know, that still endures today, which is Marilyn Monroe in the movie Blonde. And also uh, on television, I think uh, on television, you have uh, uh, a guy from L.A., um, from Montebello, Jay Hernandez, playing Magnum. Okay, he's not... Uh, they don't make Magnum Hawaiian. They don't try to make him Latino. He's just an actor playing a role, which is the way it, it, it should be. Viva Hollywood, The Legacy of Latin and Hispanic Artists in American Film by Luis I. Reyes is out now from TCM and Running Press. A link will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. All right, mister, hand it over. Don't look around. What? Come on, I said hand it over. Now. But it's not mine. I lose my job. Help! What do you got to say now, Dillinger? No tank town jail can hold me. I'll be out before a month. Wait a minute, a cop. So what? I'm all right. Yeah, but with that breath of yours and those hiccups, that cop comes sniffing around here, why? Better let me take the wheel. Custer. General, didn't recognize you without your horse. Come on, kid, tell me. You're not ready. I'm ready. Come on, level with me. Last week, two people were murdered. Have you seen the bodies? They're in the cellar. Hear your names. Mr. Brown. Mr. White. Mr. Blonde. Mr. Blue. Mr. Orange. Mr. Pink. Why am I Mr. Pink? Why can't we pick our own colors? No way, no way. Try it once and doesn't work. 
You get four guys all fighting over who's going to be Mr. Black. Which one's supposed to be the funny guy? Oh, he's the comedian. <laughs> I, I'm just a regular person. No, no, he's just being modest. <laughs> we had a funny guy with us in Korea. Tail gunner. They blew his brains out all over the Pacific. <laughs> There's nothing funny about that. He made his name defying the Hayes office by playing John Dillinger. He wrecked his career with booze and brawls, then put it back together and wrecked it again and again. In the end, he lived long enough to be rediscovered by young film buffs like Quentin Tarantino, who cast him as a living link to the old Hollywood of tough guys. Now TV writer and producer Burt Kearns digs deep into yellowing gossip columns and police blotters for Lawrence Tierney, Hollywood's real-life tough guy, from University Press of Kentucky. I spoke with him from Pasadena. I was doing research on another book, going through some newspaper clippings and newspaper articles, uh, and I came across a story, and the headline said, Lawrence Tierney arrested 13th time. It was from 1951, and he had been arrested on a drunk charge after he entered a bar barefoot and offered to whip anyone in the house. So that piqued my interest. Uh, then I looked into it a bit and saw that it wasn't his 13th arrest. It was like his 22nd arrest. And, and so I began to look into the story. But, but first, I realized after reading it, I drank with this guy once. <laughs> I, had, I had drank with Lawrence Tierney at a place called the Formosa Cafe uh, in about 1992, shortly after Reservoir Dogs came, came out, which is the movie that people recognize as his big comeback. Uh, it was it was a a, a a Chinese restaurant and a bar that was around since the 1920s. It was a place that Lawrence Tierney used to drink and, and get his Chinese food back in the 40s and 50s. And now, uh, at that point in the 90s, there were still a lot of these old actors and, and old Hollywood types hanging out there. But the new generation was there. You look at one booth and there's Tim Burton and Keanu Reeves and there's Tarantino in another booth. And over there is... Lawrence Tierney having a drink. Well, we, we, we drank together. I remember had a very nice conversation with him. There was no brawls or anything. And so that's, that struck me when I, when I read the story. And I looked into it a bit more and found some more personal connections. I have, was working at a television show on the Paramount lot. And the Paramount lot was built around the old RKO radio pictures lot. And that's where Lawrence Tierney first entered Hollywood in 1943. And actually through the same door in the same building that I had to go in every day to work. So anyway, it piqued my interest. And then the pandemic hit and the lockdown happened. And it became my pandemic project, just sitting down, doing research every day for hours, pulling up and finding every Lawrence Tierney reference and story that I could find. And what I did was I transcribed it all as I found them. And I transcribed every, every story I found, every magazine article. I was going into records and everything else and did it all chronologically. Got about 500 single space pages. And then I started to read it from the beginning. And it would be like, okay, here he is. You know, young man uh, comes from Brooklyn, uh, goes, to, goes uh, to Broadway, goes to, into theater after college, uh, becomes a, a model, gets a contract at RKO Radio Pictures, comes to Hollywood. And then the arrests happened. Well, the first thing he did was he, he comes to Hollywood. 
He's at the RKO uh, radio lot for a couple of years, and they're not really doing anything with him. They, they didn't really, they put him as another stock player, threw him in small roles in movies. And he actually saw in the trades an article that they were casting a film about the gangster John Dillinger. It was an independent company uh, on a place called Poverty Row, which is the place where all the, the, the low-budget independent filmmakers were. He went and walked up Gower Street to himself to script off the secretary's desk, learned a scene, went in and got himself the role as John Dillinger. Uh, RKO Radio Pictures really didn't care much. They, uh, they, they rented him out for about $100 a week. He worked for three weeks on the picture. picture came out, and overnight, Lawrence Tierney became a superstar. He was Dillinger. The, the movie just was a rampage throughout the country. He was an, literally an overnight sensation. About three weeks after that, he was arrested for the first time for being drunk. He was arrested about two weeks after that. And then the cycle began, which was, you know, one step forward, two steps backwards. And that's what I was reading. I'd be going, okay, great. He's done this. He's, oh, no, not again. <laughs> every time he was about to, about to take that next step, he would do something that would, that would send him back again. So it became, you know, it was, it's, it was a very, you know, interesting story. It's a, it's a, a, a page turner as I was going through it because you're seeing this actor who was really a great actor. He was, he was a, a, a really good actor. No one was as evil on screen as Lawrence Tierney, but he also was very funny as well. He wasn't allowed to use those chops as a younger man very much because once he hit it big as Dillinger, he started being cast as you know bad guys, and that's where he made his mark. Yeah, I just watched uh, Step by Step not too long mm -hmm. ago, which was a, uh, a perfectly pleasant, no great shakes kind of uh, thriller co-starring the woman who'd been in Dillinger with him, Ann Jeffries. Um, right. And he's actually quite charming and funny in it. Um, not at all what you're expecting if, you know, you you mainly know him from all the things he did where he's a bad guy. And he resented that. I mean, he was in films like um, The Devil Thumbs a Ride and Born to there are a few colder, you know, more evil characters on on screen, and Tierney didn't like that. He was like, I, I, "I would like to, I'd like to play something funny. I like to, you know, I'm not like this at all. I'm not like these characters." But the media, the press at the time, you know, treated him as if he was. So whenever he was in any kind of trouble, it was always, "Okay, here's the bad guy." You know, the bad guy of the screen is a bad guy off screen as well. When sometimes it was. You know, you had to feel sorry for him. There was, there was a real cry for help at times that people just weren't listening to. You know, the studios let him down. The, the media, the, the, the gossip press let him down for sure. And the justice system let him down as well because he'd be going, in, he'd be going into court. Let's, I mentioned that arrest for the 13th time. Uh, that had happened about three weeks after he was found in a, in a church in Santa Monica, you know, barefoot up at the altar screaming that, they were out to kill him the way they killed the actor Robert Walker, and he was in the, he was in an alcoholic you know f f frenzy. He was he was basically you know as they say out of his mind. They had to take him away in a makeshift straight straitjacket and brought him to a sanitarium, from which he escaped and was arrested uh, that thirteenth time. When he went before the judge, the judge said, "Okay, you know this, we've had it, Mister Tierney. This is it. This is you know you've, you've been in trouble so many times. Um, it's, it's time for you to spend some time in jail." But if you promise me you'll never drink again, right. I'll let you go. And he was like, yes, Your Honor, I promise I'll never drink again. Okay, good. $25 fine. 
And that happened again and again, uh, you know, through the 1950s as he got into more and more trouble. Yeah, I mean, he must have believed in himself because you show him being quoted many times in the press as, yeah, liquor got a hold of me. I'm not touching this stuff ever again. I mean, I think yeah. a lot of people who have experience with alcoholics have heard that line, you know, but they're they're completely convinced of it at the time. And two minutes later, they're pouring themselves a drink. Yeah, right. And he also would say in, in, in the press, he would say, I can't control it. You know, I, I've tried Alcoholics Anonymous. I'll keep trying it, but it won't stick. I'm powerless for this thing. And of course, at the time, the the conventional wisdom was, well, he's just weak. If he can't control, he's he's just you know too weak. If he was if he was has more moral fiber, he'd be able to stop drinking. Because they all said, you know, he was a really nice guy when he wasn't drinking. But he would say he, he couldn't control it. And you know, and this this went on. Um, you know, basically ruined his career after, you know, by 1951, his career was basically, you know, over as, as far as being a leading man or a star when he had about maybe about seven or eight films where he was a leading man. RKO uh, Radio Pictures came up with this brilliant idea about how to keep him out of trouble. They said, you know what? He keeps getting in trouble when he's playing bad guys. We'll let him play a good guy in the next movie. We'll let him be a good guy in The Bodyguard. We'll let him be a good guy in Step by Step. And maybe that'll make him, you know, behave. Of course, you know, that didn't work. We're sort of chuckling about it, but seriously, I mean, he had serious problems, not just alcoholism, but he seems to have been bipolar. And basically, I can't help but think that he was inviting this punishment a lot of the time. He'd wind up in court ready to be punished for what he had done again and again. Tierney had... Tierney had um, a childhood and a, and a family background of mental illness and alcoholism. He needed to fight. He needed to, to drink. I think a lot of the drinking was, was self-medicating. One thing I found in the book was you know, talking to people who made friends with Tierney in his later years, who were mostly you know, young people who were just getting into the business and just couldn't believe they were hanging out with the real deal. You know, f- first of all, they would say that you know, he, he wasn't drinking at all. He would he would warn them, you know, about the perils of drinking, where it would lead them. And then he would also, when there were young women around, he would ask them to, to rub his head. And they all thought that was very humorous and funny. And I was like, oh, you know, this is a little a little kinky, but he's a you know, harmless old guy. I'll rub his head. And then I, I spoke to a, a woman who was a teenager back in the 50s when Tierney was uh, living was, was living in New York City and staying over at her house. Her father was a, a low-level criminal uh, businessman, and Tierney would act as muscle for him when he went on his rounds to pick up his protection money or his, uh, uh, and you know, make his collections. And she said that Tierney used to ask her to rub his head because he would get severe headaches. And I think that, and she, she uh, attributed it to the drinking and the beatings that he took because he took a lot of beatings in the head. I mean, he probably had you know, CTE, uh, near the end as well, because you know, his memory was off and he was he had a lot of issues like that. But he, you know, when he would taunt police and they would just beat him, you know, bloody with billy clubs and kick him and you know, and he and he took a lot of hits to the head, and so, you know, it was it was it was tragic. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about his uh, his career. Um, yeah, I mean, Dillinger was the big break. I mean. Did anybody else ever become a star coming out of Monogram? Uh, it's hard to imagine. Well, out of out of RKO, um, Robert Mitchum 
came, came and Anthony Quinn came out of there. It was interesting when you look at the way RKO treated um, Mitchum and the way they treated Tierney. It was very different, and and Tierney noticed it. He knew it when Tierney went and got that role of um, as Dillinger. Anthony Quinn had been basically cast in it. They wanted Anthony Quinn, but Dillon, but uh, Tierney took the role, and Mitchum wanted the role, but RKO wouldn't allow him to have it uh, because they thought he was too hot a property. In '46, uh, Mitchum got an Academy Award nomination for the story of GI Joe. So in '48, when when Mitchum was arrested in a big pot bust, in a well-publicized pot bust, you know, before his lawyer got there and told him to shut up, he talked to the press while he was being booked. And he said, my career is over. This is it. Uh, you know, uh, say goodbye to Hollywood. And he, uh, unfortunately, fortunately for him, the new boss at RKO was Howard Hughes, who would do anything for publicity. And he said, you know, we have a we have a Mitchum picture in the can. Get it out immediately so we can cash in on this. And and then as soon as Mitchum got out of uh, jail, they put him right back to work, as opposed to tyranny, where they would cancel his contract and make a big you know public statements about it. Right. Yeah, I mean, in some way, I mean, we think of Mitchum as being a bit ornery and and a two-fisted man's man, but clearly on some level he was a better citizen in the views of the studios than Tierney was, Yeah, and they were ready to to back him up, so. The thing with Tierney is there are a lot of these stories of, you know, these Hollywood Babylon stories of actors, you know, who drank themselves into a stupor and wound up in the gutter, et cetera, et cetera, but Tierney's story was different not only because he really was a powerful actor. I mean, he did, he did stage work. He never made it to Broadway because the, the few times that he was ready to go to Broadway, he either got in a fight with the director or was accused of being drunk and was thrown out. But he did, you know, a lot of work out of town and he, he did roles. For instance, he was in the, 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 the play, the, the last mile that originally Spencer Tracy had the role on Broadway and he was reviewed in it. And they said, you know, he was great in it. He did the petrified forest in the Bogart role. They said he was great in it. He did streetcar. Right. Uh, for one night. Well, yeah, for one night, but they he got, good, he got good notices, you know, that night, but that, that was it. I mean, where he had these chances and, and he blew them, but at the same time, he never gave up. And there was always someone willing to give him another chance. Uh, you know, television came along around the time the movies uh, dried up for him. And he did, he did television appearances. And then he went to Europe. And then he, he, he did work over there. He, you know, he, he took construction jobs. He was a bartender. He, was, he, he drove a, a horse-drawn carriage yeah, in Central I Park. That that was just amazing. Imagine taking the kids for a ride around Central Park, and Lawrence Tierney is your driver. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that was you know, and that was a story that when that came out in about 1975, when it, it was revealed, the pa- you know that made every paper in the country, and they, a lot of puns, and you know, from handsome to handsome, you know, th- that sort of thing. And it was it was treated as if it was just this this tragic fall from grace. Here he is, you know. Wanted to be on Broadway, movie star, and now he's, you know, he's driving this this horse-drawn buggy. He loved it. You know, that's the only picture I, I found of him where he was smiling when he when he posed for that. And he spoke about it in a television interview in the '80s, where he just had the greatest memories of that. Just he just loved doing it. And so that was, you know, at least that was one. But at the same time, he was doing it. He was picking up roles here and there. You know, Otto Preminger put put him in uh, put him in a, in a in a film in 1971. He, he was in a, an Andy Warhol film. And then if, he made his big break when he was in Arthur. 
I was amazed to read that. Yes, so he's a he's a baseball manager in Arthur, and the other one was that he's. I'm sorry, he's a baseball manager in The Naked Gun. Naked Gun. And yeah. then he he's like an old guy at the counter in Arthur. And I guess that it's easier to imagine missing him in that. I'm sure in 1980 or whatever, I wouldn't really have known him that much anyway. Although I had seen Devil Thumbs a Ride by then. But, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, he actually had a lot of roles. For someone who nobody wanted to hire, he got a lot of work. Uh, he just didn't often well, get because, a second yeah. job. Yeah, that was the thing. I mean, he and part of what made him significant, I, th- I, mean, I think he did his best work in the 80s on television. He was on just about every television drama from you know ER to Remington Steel to Star Trek, uh, The Next Generation, to he had the final words in the final episode of Hill Street Blues. Yeah. <laughs> he was in a scene with Dennis Franz, and he had the last words. Hill Street you know, picks up the phone. But also what, what made him, I guess, more significant were the people that he worked with in that second part of his career. You know, he did Death of a Salesman in Philadelphia with George C. Scott directing. Uh, George C. Scott got afraid, got drunk, ran away from the production a week before the opening. And then Arthur Miller came in and directed uh, Tierney. He was in a supporting role, but got great notices. You know, he worked with, in those years, John Huston, John Cassavetes, John Sales, Norman Mailer, you know, Tarantino, Oliver Stone, Michael Bay. He was in James Cagney's last movie, or the right. TV uh, TV movie. He was in that. So when you look at, you know, the significant culturally significant works that he did, uh, it made him even more important as you know, as opposed to just being, you know, a, a washed up old actor who came back. And because what he also had, what he also had, producers of television shows, et cetera, and these movies, they wanted to work with Lawrence Tierney. Was, you know, the the producers of The Simpsons wanted him in for a, you know, to do to do a voice. Uh, and you know the, the people from the guy from Star Trek: Deep Space Nine, the producer uh, Ira, I think it was Ira Stephen Bear, wanted to work with Tierney, and they were like, "No, well, wait a minute, he worked with the Last Generation. He's 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 going to drive you crazy." No, no, I have to work with with Lawrence <laughs> Tierney, and of course he wreaks havoc on the set, and every you know most people were like, "Well, you know, this is what you have to expect." Yeah, I mean Seinfeld is the famous one. He was cast as Elaine's father, and he's really good. But his behavior on the set just kind of freaked them all out, particularly because he stole a prop knife, which wasn't a prop; it was an actual knife uh, from from uh, Jerry's uh, knife block on his kitchen counter. You know, uh oh, Lawrence Tierney and has a knife. Now what? <laughs> nobody would go up to him. He did this on the stage. And and Seinfeld walked up to him and Jerry said, you know, so Larry, you know, what about the knife? And he took it out and was embarrassed and said, well, that was just in case I, I had to stab you with it. And then held it over Seinfeld and did an imitation of the psycho knife and went, <laughs> and everybody looked at it and said, get this guy out of here. You know, it, it also didn't help that he had been he'd been like stealing things off of people's desks the whole week because he was a, an inveterate shoplifter as well. He's a kleptomaniac. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting. You know, you talk about running into him in Hollywood, and yeah, you know, it is that that kind of world of the the uh, the young guys amazed to actually find their next find themselves next to these you know screen legends. I mean, it's not meeting Humphrey Bogart; most of those people were were dead. But you know, right. at least someone that you could put a name to and some you know interesting late late show credits. Uh, so that's where I mean he. You know, obviously the biggest fan that he found in that time for a while was 
Quentin Tarantino, although that also went badly. Yeah, it was the, the Tarantino episode uh, occurred because of a, of a, a screenwriter, um, director named C. Courtney Joyner. Uh, he's, a, he's a Hollywood historian as well. Does a lot of uh, Blu-ray commentaries. Uh, Courtney had just been at the, the Chinese theater and saw uh, Stephen King's Silver Bullet, and you know Lawrence Tierney was in that film, and he was and he went to the, to an old bar named Board uh, called Bordner's, which is a, an old Hollywood bar right down the street from the theater, and sitting at the bar is the real Lawrence Tierney. And he went over to him, and the next thing you know, Tierney's sitting at their table, and then the next thing you know, he's sleeping over at their house. Because, you know, <laughs> yeah. And then, and he would became like you know the man who came to dinner and wouldn't leave. Uh, that happened to a lot of these guys. So they all had these great stories of of Larry and his and his wild behavior. At least you know, as far as they were concerned, it was wild. Seeing this come from from a, an old guy like that, and because he did, he he wound up hanging out at the same places that he had hung out with in in the fifties. And now there's a new generation there. And then Courtney had shared management with his friend Quentin Tarantino. This is before Tarantino, you know, did his, his first um, main real feature, Reservoir Dogs. And he showed uh, Courtney the script. And the script was dedicated to a number of heroes of Tarantino. And he saw it. Lawrence Tierney was one of them. And he said, well, you, you dedicated the script to, to Lawrence Tierney. And Tarantino said, "Yeah, he's, yeah, he was great. He was, he was killed in a in a shootout in a whorehouse in Mexico." <laughs> and Courtney said, "No, no, he lives behind the library. I see him every week." He's like, "What?" And so he introduced him to Tarantino, and uh, and that became history. Yeah. All right. Well, if, if we're going to give him, you know, credit for being worth paying attention to, let's talk about what do you think are. Th- are the major Lawrence Tierney performances? The first major performance is in a, a it's, it's unbilled, although it's a big part. It's the ghost ship. Uh, Val Luton, the horror producer at RKO, took a shining to, to Larry Tierney and got him a role in that. And he plays a, a shipmate uh, in, in this kind of, well, the ghost ship. It was sort of a, a scary ship about a, uh, about a ship captain who's going mad. And Tierney had a role where he was really funny. Uh, he, he was a real character, in it, and he had a great death scene. Uh, as far as, you know, his other films, probably, you know, The Devil Thumbs a Ride is my favorite. It's, again, he's evil, he's, he's wild, and he's also funny in it. Uh, that's, one, that's one of his best. His, um, in his later years, I think that the, uh, the best film that he was in was probably Tough Guys Don't Dance. Uh, Norman Mailer directed it and wrote it. It's a crazy film. It's over the top. And he's the one, you know, level, level-headed actor, I think. And, you know, the one realistic actor in, in the film where he plays Ryan O'Neill's father, an old guy who uh, is dying of cancer but manages to help get his son out of trouble. Deep six the heads, yeah. <laughs> Deep six the heads, that's right. You know, he did... You know, Born to Kill, I guess, is the is the one that most people point to as far as, you know, his, his greatest work. Yeah, I love Born to Kill because it does something I don't think very many noirs do, which is we see that the two scheming bad people in it are not nearly as smart as they think they are. You know, and they and they just you know they're doomed because because they think they're criminal geniuses, and it's just not the case at all. 
He's also he's also he's very good in the 1980s television show Hunter with Fred Dreyer. Huh. He plays he plays an old detective who solves the Black Dahlia case, and then he actually pins another killing on the the Black Dahlia killer. You can find that on YouTube. That's that's a good one. <laughs> yeah, you know, I saw Devil Thumbs Ride. I'm sure it's the first thing I saw him in. Uh, you know, when I was a teenager, and it's so fast paced and vicious. I always kind of had the idea that that's what Detour would be like. You know, this just right. sort of relent- relentlessly grim and, and evil crime movie. And Detour, yeah. as a result, was like a big disappointment to me. It's not nearly as, as fast or just as nasty as, as Devil Thumbs Arrive. Right, right. Right. You just, you could, just couldn't beat him when, when it came to the nastiness, for sure. He was the, you know, he was the coldest. He was, he was, he was the, the coldest uh, meanest tough guy actor that there was. And people saw that off screen as well, unfortunately, in many cases when he got too much drink in him. Yeah. But in the end, you know, but, but the, it, it is a story. It's, it's an untold, you know, Hollywood story. It was funny when I, when I wrote the book and first started getting it out to some agents and some publishers, it was, you know, who's Lawrence Tierney. Well, I, <laughs> I want to do it about Lawrence Tierney. But then when you talk to people in the industry and I happened to, to find uh, an agent, who got it, you know, he, he got it and he, and he was trying to get somebody to write a book about Lawrence Tierney and, um, uh, Lee Sobel. And, uh, you know, he, he, he went out and immediately got offers on the book and we, and we got a, a nice publishing deal to get this out with an imprint, the university press of Kentucky, which has a, has a great screen imprint and a, and a great, you know, appreciation of, of film and, you know, film players like tyranny. And he's got, a, he's got a, a very unique story. I don't think there are many actors who had such a, a quick rise, such a fall, and then came back really as like a different person. You know, the, you look at the old craggy, you know, bald headed, bullet headed old man actor that he, that he was at the end compared to the, you know, frighteningly handsome and, you know, scary leading man that he was when he was younger. And he managed to, you know, and again, he managed to have a career that, that spanned seven decades from the forties into the two thousands. It was, you know, more than 60 films, uh, 30 television, more than 30 television appearances and more than 70 arrests. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Pretty amazing for a guy who lived like he wasn't going to live that long. Yeah. And he had two brothers that, you know, that followed him to Hollywood that became actors. You know, one of them, Ed, Ed Tierney, who called himself Ed Tracy because he couldn't really use the Tierney name uh, out there. Um, he he had a he had a um, sort of a, sh- a shorter career. Uh, he was in the film The Hoodlum, playing Tierney's younger brother. And then, of course, there was Scott Brady, who forged his, his own career in Hollywood. Both of them died young, died in their fifties in the in the 1980s, and he wound up you know, outliving them both by about 20 years. And they were both you know clean living to an extent, family men you know, with families. And, you know, that, that's where I was able to speak with um, Scott Brady's son, Tim Tierney, who's sort of the family historian. And he was able to give, help me give a much more balanced portrait of the actor. You know, because when you talk to people that, that knew him, everybody from, from the screenwriters, uh, Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski, who were starting their career when Tierney was living in the apartment next door when bust in and, you know, keep them entertained. <laughs> um, to, you know, to people like, you know, Jeff Burr and, and David DelVal who, who knew him, 
they all had great stories about Larry because again, he was, you know, funny and he was, you know, he could be charming and he was also legendary. Tim gave me the story of what it was like to be a member of that family, you know, to not know that he had an uncle Larry until he was 13 years old and only finding out accidentally because Scott Brady hadn't spoken to his brother in 20 years and was trying to protect his family from him. Uh, because, you know, and, and so there's, there's, there's two sides. So he was, a, you know, he was a man, he wasn't, he wasn't a caricature. He was a man. He had, he had real issues. He had real problems, some of which he couldn't control and some, some of which that he, he may have been able to, but didn't. And, but in the end, he did leave an impression both on, on cinema and on the people that, that he knew. Uh, you know, they all said that he was a very loyal friend uh, and he, you know, when he wasn't drinking and toward the end of his life, he really wasn't drinking much at all. He was a, he was a good guy. Everybody called him Larry. Bert Kearns Lawrence Tierney, Hollywood's real-life tough guy, comes out November 29th from University Press of Kentucky. A link will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, Chris Entz, Howard Kazanjan, Luis Ireas, and Bert Kearns. And to see to Zinc at Running Press and Meredith Doherty at University Press of Kentucky. Music is by Kevin McLeod. Be sure to subscribe at the podcast app of your choice. And if you can, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts to help other people discover what we're up to here. Thanks. You think you're pretty smart, don't you? No. Don't smart off to me, smart guy.